0: hear the word of the Lord. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say, the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Um, Last week, such an amazing service. If you guys were here for Ruth Reimagined, you uh, experienced music, art, powerful stories from Megan and Christina and Chris, all sort of sharing the ways that they have seen God's faithful love. Past and present. So if you were not here and didn't get a chance to listen to that last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, I think it's really strong evidence and encouragement that the Lord is moving, like the Lord is moving in our midst, among us, in our lives. So today we're starting a new sermon series, um, one that will carry us through the summer. Um, As Katie explained, we're doing this alternating pattern over the summer here for one service uh, and then a gathering in a different way the next. And for the Sundays that we're here in this space, here's going to be our summer plan Um, Often in the Bible, we focus on the main characters, the marquee figures who get the spotlight, the Abrahams and the Moseses and Peter and Paul and Mary. But for every headliner, there are dozens of minor characters, faces in the crowd who only show up in a scene or two. You know, God loves calling the unexpected people to do unexpected things in unexpected ways, lifting up those who don't think they're very important. We see this all throughout scripture. These are second sons, these are shepherd boys, kids with loaves and fishes that happen to be there one day, immigrant women with no families, to speak of tax collectors and even God's enemies. These are the ones that God says, you're important to the story. I'm choosing you to do the work. So our series, this is our series, this is our series. It's to look at these minor characters, these minor characters who nevertheless play major roles in God's story, and we're calling it Lessons from the Lesser Known, Lessons from the Lesser Known, and our hope in this series is that these lessons would connect us to the ways that God is still using unexpected people to do unexpected things in unexpected ways, You guys, because God is still doing that. For example, about six years ago, I felt God tapping ordinary me on the shoulder with this crazy idea to start a church in New England. There were a lot of reasons not to do this crazy thing, so I needed some confirmation that what I was feeling was not something I was just making up on my own. And part of my process in the discernment series session was to actually go through all of Scripture and find every single call narrative that there was. What's a call narrative? So a call narrative is the moment when God taps someone on the shoulder and calls them to do something a little crazy. So I started digging, and I went through the whole Bible, and I found every time that God called someone to do something unexpected and strange. And I discovered that the call narratives follow a general pattern. First, there is some problem in the world. There's an injustice. There's a famine in the land. There's a mean giant hurling insults. There's some calamity. And people are scared. They're making unhealthy choices often. They start worshiping idols and going away from God, losing hope. And then eventually they end up crying out to the Lord, like, Lord, rescue us, save us. We're in trouble. Next, the Lord hears those cries, the Lord sees the suffering, and he taps an unsuspecting person on the shoulder with, hey friend, I have an idea here. And this is the call. This is often called a commissioning. It's a go forth in the Lord's name and deliver all the people. Then, in almost every case, the person being called slams the brakes on this whole idea. Hold up, slow down, Chill out, big fella. I am not very excited about your idea. You see, you've made a mistake, Lord. I'm not the right person. I'm not smart enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not a very good communicator. I'm not a leader. I'm a fisherman. I'm the youngest in my family. I've been persecuting your people. I've got a complicated past, God. Go find someone else who can do this a lot better. It's interesting to me, right? When God taps someone on the shoulder, their initial response is to object. Not to the idea itself. They're all for deliverance and liberation, but they object to their participation in the plan. God, great idea. Wrong person. I can't do it. This feeling, this self-doubt, is often called the imposter syndrome or the imposter phenomenon. You're in a situation, and you have no idea what you're doing. You're guessing, you're pretending, you've tricked everyone, it feels like, into thinking that you're good at something that you're actually not, and the whole time you're terrified that someone's going to discover that you're a fraud, you feel like an imposter. You feel like an imposter. I felt this kind of self-doubt when I sensed God calling us to start a new church in New England. I'm not the right person, right? But it was cool, right? There was an escape hatch for me to help me avoid God's call. To be a church planter in our denomination, I needed to go through a church planter assessment process, and surely I would fail the test, and they would send me home, and I wouldn't have to think about any of this anymore. Problem solved. The assessment was in Chicago. Our, over the course of a few days, Megan and I met with evaluators. We took skill and personality tests. We preached sample sermons and talked about our relationship with Jesus and intimate details about our lives, and it was a very intense, rapid-fire, emotionally and mentally exhausting few days. We were not the only ones at the assessment. There were about six other candidates also there from all over the country. And let me tell you, they were amazing people. Most of them were already leading churches. One, of the, one guy in particular was a pastor from Louisville, and he had done incredible work around racial reconciliation. His church, a majority white congregation, had merged with another church, a majority black congregation, together, and he had purposefully taken a pay cut. And he had purposely given up his role as a lead pastor, and he had purposefully placed himself and his team under the leadership of the other church. They were committed to listening and to learning and to growing from their Christian sisters and brothers. Then it was like, my turn, right? What's your story? Well, I teach ninth grade civics. Not exactly blazing a trail through the world, right? So I felt the imposter syndrome big time. All the candidates were amazing and legitimate. What in the world was I even doing there? I take some solace in the fact that I'm not the only one who experiences this kind of self-doubt. Even people who are highly successful and accomplished, they still struggle with this feeling of imposter syndrome. Albert Einstein, Tom Hanks, Maya Angelou, Michelle Obama, they have all struggled and spoken about and written about self-doubt in their own lives. And there are so many others. We can all feel this way. We can all feel like imposters that we're not the right person. That there are others more qualified, there are others better at this. We can feel this way in our jobs. I teach ninth grade civics. We can feel this way at school. We can feel this way at church, like imposters in our marriages as parents. I mean, every time we compare ourselves to what we see on social media, there is an endless, endless stream of people who are better than us at everything. They are better than us at life, right? Um, There are generally a few responses to this feeling because it's a very uncomfortable feeling for us to have, this imposter syndrome. One feeling is, or one response, is to just keep faking it, just fake it. I'm just gonna lie on my resume, Uh, I'm gonna gonna dress the part, I'm gonna hope that nobody notices. It's kind of like when you put turkey pepperoni on a pizza thinking it's basically the same as regular pepperoni and that no one will know the difference but they will. (laughs) People will know the difference. It is not the same at all. Um, It's gross. Um, Another strategy, the kids in the room, they're like, oh man, I've been eating the wrong pepperonis my whole life. (laughs) Another strategy in response to this feeling is to work harder, to get better, right, than everyone else, to prove that you belong. Think Rudy from the movie Rudy. Five foot nothing, hundred and nothing. Not what you think of when you think of a football player, but he's going to work harder than everybody else and prove to everyone else and to himself that they're all wrong about him. Right, Just buckle down and do the work. Another tendency is to run, to just get out of that awkward situation as fast as possible. And that's basically what we see Gideon do in Judges chapter 6, the passage that Sabrina just read for us. Before we get into Gideon specifically, let's establish what was happening in Israel at the time of the Judges, which is 10th century BCE, in the days before Israel had a king. This is actually the same time as the story of Ruth, which was our last sermon series. And if you remember, this was one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Moses had led them out of slavery. Moses had brought them out of the wilderness, through the wilderness, and right to the edge of the promised land. So, yay! When Moses died, Joshua took over and led the people into the promised land, and they started to build permanent towns and cities and settlements. Yay! Fast forward a few generations, and the people have gotten lazy. They've forgotten the Lord. They've broken the covenant they've made at Mount Sinai. And we've got political disunity and chaos. We've got infighting. We've got conflict with neighbors, spiritual and moral depravity. Not yay anymore. So cue the cycle, right? Cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears the cries, and the Lord taps someone on the shoulder and says, Hey, I got an idea. We see Deborah, we see Samson, other judges deliver the people in this series of events from whatever is afflicting them. And the book of Judges is a record of this painful cycle and all the people that God taps on the shoulder. So Gideon, we are in the third round of this cycle here in Gideon in Judges 6. The suffering in this particular moment of Israel's history was coming at the hands of the neighboring Midianites, who would, among other things, raid Israelite towns and take their grain and their sheep and their donkeys and their cattle. And to the Israelites, the Midianites were like locusts. They were just stripping the land bare of everything and reducing them to starvation. So they cry out to the Lord for help. And again, the Lord hears them. Verse 11, tap on the shoulder. The angel of the Lord came to Gideon, and he found him, the son of Joash, threshing wheat At the bottom of a wine press. uh, At the bottom of a wine press. Next verse, the messenger declares, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And right away, Gideon hits the pause button, right? Whoa there, mighty hero, that's not me. That's what we call the brave soldiers who fight for our country. Would a mighty hero be threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press so that nobody sees him and takes all his stuff? Don't think so. And the Lord is with me. Doubt it. Have you not seen what's been going on? Messenger, if God is with us, verse 13, why has all this happened to us? If God is with us, then where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? They told us all about how God brought us out of Egypt. That's great for them, but what about now? It feels a lot like God's abandoned us right now. So Gideon's full of self doubt. There must be some mistake. But the Lord hasn't made a mistake the Lord reiterates the call in verse 14. Gideon, I am talking to you. Go with the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. And a more literal translation of that last clause is actually a rhetorical question. Am I not sending you? In other words, when Gideon protests that God hasn't shown up for generations, Gideon, or the Lord's response is, Gideon, I am showing up. I am showing up. I'm sending you. My plan is you. Cue the formal objection, and this is classic imposter syndrome, verse 15. But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe, and I am the least in my entire family. How can I do this? It's worth noting here that we don't just make up imposter syndrome. It's not something we just invent on our own. We learn it over time. It comes from being told over and over that you're not smart or not powerful or not good enough. And often this messaging comes at the societal level, and it's directed at groups of people. Often at groups of people like people of color, or women, or those who have accents, or those who have disabilities, or who don't have a lot of money. People who look or seem different than the dominant culture for whatever reason. Sometimes these messages come from our own families, from parents, from teachers, from pastors from leaders, classmates, who have told us in one way or another that we are flawed, and therefore unworthy. And once you've been told repeatedly that you don't belong, you believe that you don't belong. I am the weakest, I am the least. And even when folks do manage to get a seat at the table, even when they've reached the pinnacle of success, they still face tremendous pressure to keep proving that they belong. To be perfect and never make a mistake. Take Simone Biles. She is the most decorated American gymnast of all time. 25 world championship medals. At the Rio Games, the Olympic Games in 2016, she won a bronze medal on the balance beam and gold medals on the vault and the floor and the individual all around and the team all around. Five medals in the 16 Olympics. As the 2020 Games approached in Tokyo, she was favored to win four of the six medals that she was competing in, favored to win gold medals. She was the best of the best. But a few days before competing, Biles withdrew from most of the competition because she was struggling to keep her sense of balance. She said she was feeling the weight of the world on her shoulders, the pressure, the expectation. She attempted to compete, but she could not shake her self-doubt. She was suffering a mental breakdown in front of the world. And it was hard for many on the outside to understand her struggle. I mean, she's the best gymnast in the world, maybe the best gymnast ever, and yet she was still crippled by anxiety and self-doubt. Some called her a quitter or weak or un-American. Others, especially other athletes, supported her and thanked her for prioritizing her mental health. Simone Miles was is so brave. She helped us see that even the most accomplished people can feel like imposters. You see, past success doesn't conquer our self-doubt. In fact, 70% of highly successful people experience the imposter syndrome. Biles' courage, her honesty, it helped start a conversation about the role of mental health in athletics. She forced us to remember that an athlete is actually still a person, not just a robotic performer for our entertainment. Gideon, our military hero, he hasn't won any medals. He has no accolades, no past success. The weakest tribe, the smallest in his family, he doesn't have the ability to do what God is calling him to do. So God says two things to him that I want to focus on for the rest of our time. Two things for Gideon to cling to, two things that I think we need to hear this morning as well. And the first thing the Lord says is, I am with you. I'm with you. Gideon needed a lot of this kind of reassurance in his story. He, if you know the story, tested God repeatedly, even after this moment. And only after God confirmed that, yes, I'm really calling you, Gideon, multiple times, over and over, in every single way that Gideon actually asks him to, only after multiple reassurances does Gideon reluctantly agree to lead the army of the Lord. And then God shrinks the army from 32,000 to just 300. There's a big difference. 32,000 down to 300, and they win the battle, Right? With trumpets and torches, like no swords and shields, trumpets and torches. That's what God sent them into the battle with. Scripture tells us, First Corinthians, that God chooses things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. God chooses things that are powerless to shame those who are in power. It's clear in the story of Gideon that deliverance comes from the Lord, right? Not from Gideon's strength, not from his leadership, not from his courage, not from the size of human armies or weapons, but from the Lord. This is the unexpected way of the gospel. This is Jesus, the traveling teacher, ninth grade civics, right? With no weapons in his hands, nothing in his hands, yet taking on the powers of sin and death. You know, Gideon didn't think very much of himself. He tried everything that he could think of to get out of participating. He was reluctant Hesitating, he whined about everything. At no point in the story does he ever seem commendable or faithful. He never turns into that mighty hero that we really want him to be. But God never gives up on Gideon. God wants him to be part of the story. You know, God could have freed his people in a thousand different ways, but God wanted to do it through Gideon. That's because, in addition to wanting the people to be free from the Midianites, God also wants Gideon to be free from his fear and doubt. God wants Gideon to be free of his own fears and doubts. God doesn't want to just use us. God actually wants to change us in the process. Maybe it's similar to the way that I get so excited when one of my kids does something that I think is so brave and so hard. I coached my kids' soccer team this year, and on our drives home after losing games, (laughs) I'd explain to them that I care more about the kind of people that they are than the kind of players that they are. I care more about the kind of people that they are than the kind of players that they are. And I want them to be kind, and encouraging and supportive, win or lose. On the heels of that inspiring pep talk, at the next practice, our goalie made a huge mistake that allowed the other team to score a goal with ease. And instead of grumbling or saying something mean to his teammate, Thatcher turned to her and said, good try. And I was more proud of him for saying good try to her than I was of the three goals he scored in our last game. I think God cares deeply about the kind of people we are. He wants us to be the kind of people who love others, who are kind and compassionate and supportive and grace-filled, win or lose. The kind of people who trust God and say yes when God calls us to do something that we don't think we can do. God doesn't doesn't only care about the people in a general sense. God cares about each of us specifically. He cared about Gideon. Which brings me to the second thing that God said to Gideon, verse 14. Go with the strength that you have. Go with the strength that you have. Not the strength you used to have. Not the strength that you're going to have. Not someone else's strength. Go in whatever strength you have in this moment, right here, right now. Go in that strength. You'll always be able to point to someone who has more strength than you, or more money than you, or more experience than you, or more capacity than you, or more intelligence than you, or more charisma than you, or more time than you have, or more creativity than you have, or more wisdom than you have. You'll always be able to point to somebody else, And you'll point to them and you'll make your case to the Lord. Lord, look at her. She's clearly the person that you want in this situation. And the Lord will patiently repeat the words. Go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. If God is inviting you into something, it does not matter if you think someone else is more gifted or more qualified. Go with the strength that you have. News flash, I made it through the church planter assessment process. They affirmed God's call and they helped us get started, but the imposter feeling didn't go away. When I got here, I met up with pastors from the other High Rock churches. We were, part of, we were at the time part of the High Rock network of churches in the greater Boston area, and I realized with some alarm that I was built differently than the other lead pastors and church planters in the network. Maybe you know the Enneagram, if you do, it's a way of describing what motivates people, how they walk through the world, why they behave the way they do, and there are nine personality types on the Enneagram little wheel here. I tend to be a number four on the Enneagram. And a number four, I know it's very small, you can't read it, but a number four is value originality. They value authenticity. They like thinking outside the box, challenging the status quo, appreciating creativity and storytelling and vulnerability. I can also be inefficient prone to distractions, easily second-guess my decisions. So there I am, Enneagram 4. And all of the other lead pastors and church planters, every single one of them, all nine of them, were Enneagram 3s. Enneagram 3s tend to be ambitious and goal-oriented. They're wired to achieve, and they're usually successful at whatever they do. They build things, they accomplish things, they grow things. One of these things was not like the others, and that thing was me. (laughs) And self-doubt just came at me from all sides. You don't belong here. You were right. You're not the right kind of person for this. Calmly, patiently, as with Gideon, the Lord met me in that doubt. Matt, I am calling you. You know this. Megan knows this. The church planter assessment people confirmed this. And I realized that I needed to be okay with this tension. The tension of, I feel unequipped, and the Lord is calling me, right? Those two things can be true at the same time. I can't do this, and the Lord is calling me to do this. And if God is calling me, God's not going to abandon me. God's not going to pull the rug out from under me down the road and have a good laugh at my expense. If God is calling me, then God will be with me every step of the way. Go in the strength that you have. I was different than all of the other planters and pastors, but evidently God still wanted to use me. I guess there's more than one type of church planter out there. So here I am, five years later, trusting that God is still with me, going with the strength that I have, and all the credit and glory going to Christ, who chooses, again, what the world considers foolish, who chooses what the world considers powerless. Here's the lesson from the lesser known this morning. Here's a lesson from the lesser known. God will call you. God will call you. You aren't just a face in the crowd. God will tap you on the shoulder and call you to step forward to do something that you are not sure about. And when you feel that nudge from the Lord, imposter syndrome will come at you big time and rear its terrifying head and you will feel under equipped and you will feel unqualified and you'll be able to think of a dozen people who are better at that thing than you are. And you'll ask for confirmation and reassurances from the Lord, and the Spirit will patiently affirm that God has not made a mistake. In fact, God has chosen you. Go with the strength that you have. You might succeed, and you might fail. In fact, I'm quite sure that God's definition of success is very different from ours. God might succeed in changing us, even as we fail at the task in front of us. Just because we fail at the task doesn't mean that God didn't call us to do the thing. Sometimes the trusting and the doing are enough. Sometimes the trusting and the doing are enough. God is with you. Go in the strength that you have. God is with you. Go in the strength that you have. Amen? Let's pray.